Welcome to Still Unbelievable, a podcast by Reason Press, where we examine religious claims, especially those made by Christians, and we regularly respond to items that are featured on the podcast, Unbelievable. We embrace dialogue, but as sceptical former believers, we will also criticise unfounded claims and unsupported beliefs. Welcome to a very special post-Easter edition of Still Unbelievable. This is your regular English guy, Matthew, on the desk, and I've got my regular non-English guy, Andrew. Say hello to the world, Andrew. Hello, everyone. Good to be back. Yes, so it's just the two of us uh, doing our thing this time. Point of note, because I'm sure none of you will notice, Andrew's outside for this recording. I don't think we're going to be a particularly long recording this one. Andrew's outside, so if you hear any additional noises in the background, it's, it's Andrew enjoying nature, as is best for us to do. Whereas if you hear whirring or anything like that, that's me in my office with non-nature things, which is what you shouldn't be doing. So that's that is the introduction. So, Andrew, with nature being the perfect thing that it is, what is it we're going to talk about today? Ah, well... I think we've both been uh, chomping at the bit a little bit to talk about this for a while. I don't know that we've talked much about the fact that we both wanted to, but I think it's something we have both wanted to do. We've wanted to talk about minimum basic facts for the resurrection. And the reason I think we both would have wanted to talk about it is because if there's no Christian resurrection, then Christianity doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, and people like Gary Habermas and uh, Michael Kona, William Lane Craig, and a number of other notable Christian scholars have spent a lot of time trying to make sense out of the resurrection and to build a story that makes this fundamental aspect of Christianity approachable and real. I think that's a perfectly good exercise. They don't end in the place that you and I did. And so I guess today what the listeners are going to hear is a rationalist response to the Christian story of the resurrection as told through the lens of history and a Christian lens with Christian glasses on. And so now they get to hear the other side. We'll just have to wait and hear what the listeners think when we're done. Yes. For a little bit of context, had you ever been exposed to the minimal facts approach towards the resurrection while you were still a Christian? Oh, I'm, oh, see, I love that you asked it and I hate that you asked it. So I was going to ask you that question. Uh, <laughs> well, my answer is very short. No, I hadn't. I've only been exposed to this since leaving Christianity. So that's my experience, too. And I think that actually is going to play an important part in how you and I address one of the first minimum facts. Yeah. Um, so, uh, no, I was not exposed early on, and I wish I had been, but so, so we'll get to that, because uh, that's one of the early points, is that the disciples were exposed to a resurrected Jesus, and that's why they believed. The approach that we're going to take to these six items that I've got, which are 
the basic standard ones that you'll see popularized when you Google minimal facts for the resurrection. There are others. The, the number does vary a little bit, but it's the basic six, which most of you will be familiar with if you've looked into these at all. And the approach that we're going to take is we're going to start at zero, which is no commitment whatsoever to the resurrection. The way the minimum facts are supposed to work is it's supposed to be a cumulative case. So by the time you get to the end of accepting all of these minimal facts, you are supposed to be several points towards accepting the resurrection. So we're going to test ourselves on these and see if it's actually moved us at all. And just before we get into this, I think I'll say it now rather than partway through the conversation we're about to have. The single criticism that I have against Gary Habermas's, well, I guess it's not really Gary Habermas's minimal facts, but it's against all arguments towards resurrection, is that you can only really hold them if you take the gospel accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus as absolutely and completely literally true, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. If you take any sceptical approach whatsoever to those gospel narratives, then the resurrection becomes doubtable. And I think this is the problem that Christians have when affirming the resurrection, is they can only do it by taking the gospel accounts as absolute literal fact, as unquestionably true. But no other document of that age or that heritage is ever taken as 100% literally true. And this is a problem with reading the Bible like that. So that's my single objection to any argument for the resurrection and for the miracles of Jesus. So I like that you said that because I think it invites us to say, since we don't take other historical documents as literally true, or at least we're careful about how much we accept them, aren't we putting blinders on to some degree when we talk about Josephus or Tacitus and their propping up of the Christian story. There's a lot of weight put on Josephus and Tacitus. Mm -hmm. In fact, they're almost elevated to the level of canon because they support the Christian story. There is an unusual reliance, in my view, beyond what we would place on other historical documents of that age. Mm -hmm. This sounds like I have gone from skepticism to cynicism. I don't want it to seem that way. I'm not, I'm not moving from skepticism to cynicism. I just think that you created a proper context there about age of historical documents and the amount of reliability that we place on them. And, and we hold them in a certain degree of reserve. And I don't think when we talk about historical documents that back Christian accounts, we often hold them with the same degree of reserve. So yeah. take that for what it's worth. Yes. Uh, and, and anyway, my, my long-winded way as usual of agreeing with you. <laughs> Excellent. And long may that last. Right. So with that set, with the groundwork set, let's jump straight into these minimal facts and see Indeed. if any of them move us away from point zero and by how much. 
first point is Jesus died by crucifixion. Is this a fact? Is this controversial? What can we know about it? And more, most importantly, if we decide to accept this as a fact, what does it mean? Okay. Do you want to go first or do you want me? Okay. To? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll go first and then you, you can agree with me in your usual way, I guess. Okay. So, <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. I guess for me, this starting point is probably the least controversial one at all. Forgetting the Jesus bit, it was basically a way of ending somebody's life through a means of extreme torture. There was absolutely nothing that was pleasant about it. And that exactly was the point. You had displeased the authorities and they were going to publicly torture you so that you could die visibly over a prolonged period of time. Jesus, in whatever capacity Jesus existed, if he died, it's very likely that he died this way. There are other ways that he could have died, but this is a high probability cause of death. I have no problem whatsoever accepting this as a death, but it doesn't move me towards a resurrection. So I, oh boy, I'm so... Okay, I'm going to come alongside and just uh, agree in my usual long-winded way. If Alexei Navoni died as a result of whatever, whatever usual method the Russian government uses to put dissenters to death, if Alexei Navoni died that way, would any of us be surprised if he said, Vladimir Putin is going to have me killed by whatever the common... Russian government way is of putting dissenters to death. Would any of us be surprised that Alexei Navalny, a known critic of Vladimir Putin, would any of us be surprised if he could predict his manner of death? Of course we wouldn't. We would not be surprised. As the listeners know, I'm a pretty avid runner. I'm out right now running. Sorry for the background noise. And they also know that I'm visually impaired. So suppose that I said, uh, I am probably going to die uh, by some kind of a car accident. Would anyone really be surprised if that came true? Well, they shouldn't be. It's not uncommon for walkers and joggers and runners to come against some kind of accident with a motor vehicle. Let's take a third just for fun. The people that participated in the January 6th riot, the insurrection uh, at the United States Capitol on January 6th, 2021, lots of those folks said, oh, we're going to be persecuted. They're going to put us in jail. Some of us may die. Yada, yada, yada. Well, in fact, a woman did die. Should we think of her or anyone that made a similar prediction? as having extraordinary predictive power. I, I don't think that we should. And so in the case of the first minimum basic fact, it doesn't move the needle for me. As you said, the, the Roman government used crucifixion. And we know that Jesus, uh, in the story, spends some time moving from place to place and avoiding Roman authorities. So why does the first minimum fact surprise anyone? Why, why would I lend any weight to it as being critical toward 
proof of the resurrection. I, I don't know why I would. Maybe you can convince me why I should. So if our needle starts at zero, where has our needle moved to after fact one? It hasn't moved for me. OK, well, OK, maybe there are two needles for me. One that says somebody's trying to record some sort of accurate story here. And one that says, oh, by the way, and now I should believe in the miracle claimed at the end of the story. OK, <laughs> the miracle claim yeah. needle has moved none whatsoever. The RPMs needed to rev this motor and, and get me to race along in the Christian story. Nowhere. Is this a believable aspect of somebody's eventual death? OK, sure. It's a believable aspect. Maybe you get me to say there was some guy named Jesus that might have been killed. Yeah. Mine is exactly the same. My note says this fact move, moves my acceptance of the crucifixion by exactly 0.00. Right. <laughs> so, um, OK, so next fact. OK, now we're getting something that's a little bit more meaty. Maybe we've got something here that can count on the cumulative case. Very soon afterwards, his followers had real experiences that they thought were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. OK. I'm a little troubled by the setup. Real experiences of what they thought was a risen Jesus. Okay. I, I think it's intentionally meant to be vague to try to get your needle to move. I agree. So the problem is, um, in, in one sense, I can say, what do you mean by real experience? And say, as far as I can tell, dead people don't rise. And so the question is poorly worded and it doesn't move the needle at all, right? On the other hand, all of the experiences I have are real to me, whether they represent facts about the world or not. And so it depends on how you read that question. In the first sense, I have no idea what each of them experienced, what each of the people experienced is not recorded. Um, and, and I have no way to assess whether there was a risen guy walking around uh, that appeared to them or not. But I can say this. Uh, the baseline probability that some guy rose from the dead is as close to zero as I can imagine. Yeah. But do you accept that they had real experiences and that as a result of those real experiences, they thought they had an experience of Jesus? Do you yeah, think okay, that is um, true? You can properly accuse me of dodging if, if you think I am dodging. I, I think that some of them may. I really don't know what all of them thought. Because what they all thought is not part of any kind of recorded record. So what did all 12 disciples think? Well, we don't have direct accounts from all 12. What we have are summary accounts for all 12. What did Andrew think? The apostle Andrew, what did he think? Did he think there was a risen Jesus? I have no idea. Where's his individual self-attestation? 
I don't know. Do you? Maybe it's there. What did, what did each person think? I have no idea. Do I think that some people thought it? I, I guess. Why not? And this touches on what I was saying right at the top of the episode. This is where we get to passages in the Gospels, which are treated as though they are 100% accurate, literal, historical recordings, when we don't know that they are. Yes, the stories of Jesus' appearances to the disciples after his death are very soon after his death, like literally days. But the accounts as written down were tens of years later. Not only are they tens of years later, but there are reports of what dozens or hundreds of people thought. In today's terms... People should, if, if I report how you feel, and you and I are pretty careful about this actually, if I report how you feel, people should treat that with a degree of skepticism. And really, what they should want is to be able to verify how you feel if they think what I say should matter, right? If, if they're concerned about the story and you're an integral part of the weight of the story, then they should want your testimony. Mm -hmm. We do in court. We don't get to testify for other people in court. Why is the Christian New Testament different? Why is the Christian standard? Look, Lacona lost his job over Matthew uh, 27, 52 through 54. It's the verses that have to do with the graves breaking open. Dead saints walking around. There's no historical evidence for that kind of thing, and some Christians have started to reject it as literal fact and to think of it as hyperbole. In the same way, if someone's individual account is not recorded and they're testifying for someone else, maybe it's not quite hyperbole, but I don't give it the same degree of credibility as I would an individual reporting for themselves. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question. It's a straight yes, no. My answer, I'll give you in advance, is no, which probably means that Christians will point at me and say, ha ha, hyper skeptical, of course you're wrong. So my question is, to which my answer is no, do you accept that his followers had real experiences? No. Okay. Uh, And the reason I don't is... Because your biases refuse to allow you to take the Bible seriously. That's what it is. Come on, let's be honest. Well, because my base rate of people dying and coming back to life after after three days is zero. It's it's zero. And I don't know anybody who can say that they do know somebody that came to life after three days and have good evidence for it. What, what could that good evidence from 2,000 years ago possibly be? I know they believed it. I, look, let me just, let's just say that every person that has been talked about in the New Testament really believed a dead guy got up and walked after three days. What does that do for me today? Not much. No. Likewise. And let's 
put this back into the context, these are people writing about these events tens of years later. And people who've listened to our podcast for a sufficient amount of time will have heard me talk about the experience at my mother's funeral, where people recounted when she had been kidnapped 30 years previously. And at her funeral, somebody stood up and recounted about how that kidnap experience, there was a miracle because there was a flash of thunder in the sky and the people kidnapping her got scared and set her free. That was an utter fabrication. It wasn't true. It did not happen on that day. And the first time I had ever heard that version of her kidnap event was the day of her funeral. It made me cross. It was a pleasant experience to hear on the day of my mother's funeral, this lie. But this happens in people's lifetime, in 30 years, a story of a terrible kidnapping had somehow been polluted by Christians into being a miracle, which didn't happen. And you expect me to believe that that didn't happen 2000 years ago? Of course, it's possible it happened. And that's exactly what I think happened. Right. And maybe it's not impossible. Okay, fine. It's not impossible. But if we're going to talk about minimum basic facts, and and if our listeners take anything away from what I say in this episode at all. Here is the one thing that I want people to take away. That is this. If you want to talk to me, Andrew Knight, about minimum basic facts, here's what you have to do. You have to talk to me about a set of minimum facts that will help us decide whether any miracle of any kind is real. Why? Because that standard will help me decide not only whether there was a Jesus resurrected, but whether he had any power to do other things. Could he control nature? Could he himself raise people from the dead? Could he curse fruit trees? Could he heal the blind? and the lame. I am not convinced by Gary Habermas's exercise of of the minimum basic facts in any, any way at all. Because as far as I can tell, it is all special pleading for this one bit of the Christian story. Yep. And I just don't care. Maybe some Christians will say, right, okay, but but Andrew, we don't have an actual toolbox that actually allows us to decide whether some miracle claim is in fact a miracle versus those uh, that are are simple frauds. Right. (laughs) And, And that is the problem. And that is why we're on this, this Gary Habermas minimum basic facts about the resurrection train is because no one has offered an actual test for confirming those things that might be miracles with those things that are frauds. It's all special pleading, although subtle, 
I think it's all special players. Yes, I think so too. Quickly then, has this one moved your needle of zero? Can this needle move negatively? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, mine's still on zero, so mine's not moved. You're, you're thinking you've gone backwards. You're, you're further away from the resurrection now, are you? Um, no, I, I mean, I think, I think zero's a perfectly good place to be. It's, it's uh, a comfortable oh, place to be, yeah. Yeah. All right, so the next one is very similar off this one, so maybe we'll be a little bit shorter on this one. So number three, their lives were transformed as a result of these experiences, even to the point of being willing to die. Oh. Okay, you get to go first. It's your turn. You're right. I'm the odd one. So, yes. So their lives were transformed. It's exactly the same objection to the previous one. I don't know that their lives were transformed. I know what is written about their lives, which was written tens of years later. But I think I'm more likely to believe that their lives were genuinely transformed by something. Because sure. it's very possible that tens of years later, some of these documents may not have been written if there hadn't been a change. But what I'm going to suggest is that maybe the change in their lives wasn't as dramatic as the documentation suggests it might have been. Maybe it was a gradual change because we've got the time span available for it to be a more gradual change and not a very quick, abrupt change. So there is that as a possibility. So this goes back to the whole, are we reading the gospel narratives uncritically? Are we reading the gospel narratives and going, this is exactly what happened in history? Because if you are, I suspect you're the one who's got the problem. We need to have a little bit of criticality applied here. And there's lots of, I don't know, I can't judge. You know, we've got translations which are years later. We've got fragments that are within tens of years, but lots of scope for fictionalization, lots of scope for changes to be made. And we really can't know what actually happened in those early days, weeks, months. So yeah, did some people's lives change as a result of being convinced by something? Yes, I still don't know what that something is. So it still doesn't help me. I feel like, I, th I think some people will just say, uh, I think the presuppositionalists will just say Andrew's being dishonest. Uh, he knows he's living in sin, but he likes his sin. So he's going to tell some comfortable story to sort of counter the truth of Christianity. OK, fine. With that in mind, I am going to say this. I've gone through multiple changes in my life. Uh, changes that were equally transformative. Uh, as as my in scare quotes, conversion to Christianity. And, and I'll tell our listeners, uh, new and old, that I am a better person now as an atheist and, and as, a, as a straightforward humanist. I am a better person today than I was as a Christian. And so I think I can say with, with complete confidence that I've been through both kinds of changes. And my point is this. Going through a change doesn't make the story behind the change true. People convert to Islam. People convert to Buddhism. People convert to New Age spirituality. Why are those conversions less credible? Back in 2015, 
there was an LGBTQI plus lawyer who burned himself. It might have been 2014. My apologies if I get the year wrong. Uh, it was right before the Supreme Court legalized homosexual marriage in the United States. This advocate burned himself to death. He immolated himself in Central Park. Wow. So clearly committed. If you're a Christian and you're listening, let me ask you this. Should his story of commitment to the LGBTQI community be considered more righteous, uh, more true? Should we take away better instruction from it? Because he immolated himself. Fundamental evangelicals would say, no, homosexuality is clearly wrong. Whether he immolated himself or not, he was still living in some kind of sin. I'm not sure why this level of, quote, conversion is important. Okay, that was an awfully long monologue. <laughs> That's I, really am I really am sorry. No, no, don't, no need to apologize. Very quickly, though. Would you have died for your faith as a Christian? Yes. Yeah, I, I would too. Yes. Would you convert back if your life depended on it? That is a much harder. Yeah. Would I give lip service to Christianity to save my life? Probably. But I can't unknow the things I know. Uh, look, I, there are people in Russia right now who don't support the invasion of Ukraine. There are plenty of Russian citizens who recognize that there's a problem, but they're not all wearing Ukrainian flag shirts on the street corners in Russia, and they're quietly going about their business because they don't want to be jailed. So, yeah. Would I put a cross around my neck to save my life and give my daughter an easier life? Yes, I would. Would I convert back to Christianity in the full-throated, I'm a Christian and you should be two cents? No. No, that's a very similar uh, response to what I will give. But I'm going to make it a little bit pers more personal for myself. Mm, please. Uh, without going on a religious-type rant. Around about two years ago, just over two years ago, you and I did a podcast episode with Cosmic Skeptic, Alex O'Connor, and uh -huh. we talked about veganism. Now, I don't shout about it a lot on our podcast, but following that episode, I had a conversation with my family, and we decided as a family to give being vegan a trial. And we tried it for a month and decided uh -huh. that we could do this, and we have stayed vegan ever since, so I've now been vegan two years. And I've changed as a result. I no longer see farm animals as something to aspire to. I no longer see being an animal farmer as something that's worthy. I, my whole attitude towards animal farming is one of disdain. It has changed completely. I like my new lifestyle as a vegan. I used to be the sort of person who would avoid vegan items on a menu in a restaurant out of pure principle. So I've had a complete change around in my attitude. I've seen a few animal documentaries and a few documentaries about farming. Some of the things that I've seen have literally made me shake and seethe with anger, the treatment of animals that I've witnessed. Does that change in and of itself 
legitimize veganism for people who are not me. And I want to say, no, it doesn't. I want to use it as an argument to try to persuade people to consider being vegan. But my experience post becoming vegan is not in and of itself a justification for you to become vegan. It doesn't work that way. It's my justification for me. But I might use it to try to get you to think about it. Does that, have I explained that well? Does that work? Sure. The, these post-resurrection experiences of disciples. Yeah, of course it does because, oh wow, so glad you got here. We were talking in the opening of the show about getting to this point. I am unsure why an experience from 2000 years ago should convince me of a live risen Jesus today. Okay, let me build on your example. You are a vegan. Uh, by the way, I, I was happy for you for that change. I'm not. I am serious about ethical treatment of animals. We don't get to quite the same place. But let's suppose that we move 100 years in the future and someone looks back. They hear this show and they think, oh, wow, I should be a vegan, too. Well, maybe they should and maybe they shouldn't. Here's a reason why they they might should not be. We're experimenting now and are, and are very close to having lab-grown meat products, beef and chicken and that sort of thing, in which no animal suffers, right? We, we just use cellular reproduction to make these products. Well, in that world, uh, actually, maybe I should ask you, in a world where all meat protein is on the shelf without animal harm. Would you go back to meat consumption if you enjoyed it? You know what? I hesitate to answer that. And I think this answer might surprise a few people because I genuinely did enjoy eating meat. I don't miss meat. I don't miss the time it takes to cook it. I don't miss that moment when you cut into it and you think, is this properly cooked? I don't miss the flavor and the texture. Mm. So would you think someone else? Uh, I'm not sure uh, that I would. <laughs> I mm. might try it, but I genuinely don't think that I would rush to it. I'm not sitting here waiting for lab grown meat. I'm not enthusiastic <laughs> about lab grown meat in the sense that I really want it to exist so I can eat meat again, because that desire, that enthusiasm for meat, simply doesn't exist in me okay that's fair enough would you would you have an ethical objection no none, none whatsoever okay now here's I, I know people are thinking right but it's not a parallel case andrew here's why it's a parallel case i don't know what those people experienced but let's just say for a moment that they experienced a risen jesus i don't have that experience of a risen jesus I have what to me are quite good skeptical reasons to doubt the accounts. And where I am in this world at this time suggests that there's no, people don't rise from a three-day death. But even if they did, why would I think that this Jesus can control space and time and end the earth? 
he can come back on a cloud blowing a trumpet and raise all of the dead from the bottoms of the oceans. Why would I think that? Let's just say he could raise somebody recently dead. Let's just say he could do that. Would I justifiably reach the conclusion that he could raise people thousands of years dead for myself? I don't find that kind of conclusion justified. I see no reason to think that someone thousands of years dead with no body, no bones, no structure of any kind. I see no reason to think that that kind of resurrection would be anything like resurrecting a recently deceased body. So even if I give the story its, it's very best hearing in my head, and I say, okay, all of those people saw something they thought was real, and it was. There's a guy that, that was raised from the dead. You still don't get me to, and he can do that for everyone throughout history. So has your needle moved off zero? I guess not. <laughs> no, it, it really is. This cumulative case is adding, not adding up, adding up, I don't, fading do to you, add up. Yeah. Do you have the problem? It's balanced. Yeah. Do you have the problem I just described, or do you, or do you think I'm being too demanding? Do you see the problem that I see, or do you I think, think it's? You're, I think you're analyzing it to a level of detail that I'm not prepared to. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Like that didn't answer your question, did it? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, well, yeah, you know. I should be a politician. <laughs> there, there are answers, and there are answers. Uh, I feel like this was a minimum basic facts kind of answer, but hey. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, halfway there. Number four, it's your turn. That these things were taught very early, soon after the crucifixion. These things taken to mean the previous two that we've just discussed. Mm -hmm. Does proximity, does temporal proximity help you? No. So I'm going to make this one really short. I'm going to make this really short. There were plenty of people at that time and place, that same historic proximity, who were not convinced. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. There were. You went for a different analogy to me. My analogy is in 2001, very soon after the events, people were teaching that thermite explosives were used to bring down the Twin Towers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In 2020, very soon after, there were people who were teaching that there was fraudulent activity caused Donald Trump to lose the election. Mm -hmm. Plenty of anti-vaxxers, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Temporal proximity is not a good measure of accuracy. Right. And so the reason I went for the historical proximity to the event was this. Um my ability to decide whether the people that did, were not convinced is not any better than my ability to decide about the people who were convinced, if you see what I mean. So I don't know any of those people. I don't know how reasonable they were. Um, we don't have, we don't have accounts of, um, of both sides, right? The, the Christian New Testament is written from a singular distinctive viewpoint. 
So if Jesus had been raised in the, um, let's say his body was drug into the Roman Colosseum, and the Romans had said, um, okay, fine, this guy says he's going to be raised in three days. Uh, we're selling tickets at the Colosseum. And, and something happened three days further on. Well, it would be interesting to have that kind of history. Who was reasonable and who wasn't reasonable? Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's not the story that we have. What we have is a, is a story written with a very particular bias. And I'm just not prepared to say that the people who had the bias for Jesus were more reasonable or rational or had better evidence or what have you than the plenty of people at that time who were not convinced. Well, that was my short version. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I've done my short version. Yeah, you, you've covered it. I, that people said so soon after. But we're, we're straight back to, yes, it's written in the book that these things happened soon after, but we don't have all the original fragments. You know, some of the contents of the writings that we've got are decades or more later. There's a long period of time. OK, yes, it could well be that they're accurately writing what was verbally transmitted from very soon after. But there's also plenty of time, as my personal example already said, for fictionalization, fabrication, either intentional or otherwise, to creep into these stories. It happens with anything that's passed on verbally. Yes, it is a good reason to question it. And I don't get the sense that these questions are, well, okay, that, that's actually going to seem very presuppositional. I'm going to be careful about how I relay this. I don't get the sense that Christians are considering this very carefully. So here's why. In my Christian circles, there weren't any people going after this story with the kind of rigor that we are trying to apply. So I'm not saying it's not talked about. I think that Christians use a lower threshold of skepticism in regard to the resurrection story than they do thresholds of skepticism about other aspects of their lives. That's my experience. Yeah. Perhaps other Christians have a very different experience. And if so, I accept that. Yeah. A charge that I've seen from Christians about people like myself when challenging the gospel accounts in the way that I do is, why do you have such a high standard against the Bible? And my response is, I don't have such a high standard against the Bible. I'm trying to treat the Bible the same as any other equivalent document from the same period with such amazing stories in it. What I want you to do is do the same. It, it really is. It's not us being hypercritical and hypersceptical of what's written in the gospel. It's Christians are not being sceptical enough. <laughs> exactly. If you think I'm a cynic, well, I'm not unequally cynical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I'm not a cynic. I can be convinced, just not by this kind of evidence. I think. Yes. Yeah. It is. I'm massively disappointed by these minimal facts. I, I'm going through it and seeing the number of Christian websites which are pushing on, expounding a lot of article words to promoting it is really quite disappointing. I just don't know how people have jumped on it so, so much with such enthusiasm. I don't either, but that's a good place to tease 
an upcoming episode uh, about evidence and skepticism with yes. uh, Professor Brian Blaze. It's about um, time we had him back on again because it's been more than a year. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so for, for those of you that um, that love Brian as much as Matthew and I do, he's coming back. He is maybe one of the most gracious guests we ever have on Still Unbelievable. And so, Brian, if you're listening, thank you for being willing to come back. And uh, I'm looking forward to that conversation as always. Absolutely. You naughty tease. I didn't give you permission to say that. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm so sorry. So after number four, are we moved off zero closer to moving off zero is the needle stuck do we need to check the gears i think there are plenty of christians who say we need to check the gears but no my needle hasn't my needle hasn't hasn't moved any i'm i'm not uh i'm not off zero no I'm, I'm i'm not off zero no but number five now i'm going to tease number five does move my needle so number five okay james jesus is unbeliever became a christian due to his experience there you go even the guy's brother converted and believed that's got to be good enough for you surely okay all right i'm going to take this seriously i I wanted i wanted to make needle jokes but I'm I'm, i'm going to do better than my usual and i am going to say this my brother and i don't always get along but we do love each other very, very, uh, very deeply. And I would go to extraordinary lengths if my brother needed something. And I would not count the cost. And I suspect, Matthew, that you would do the same for your brother. Yeah. Here's why, here's why it doesn't move the needle for me then. I am more emotionally vulnerable to believing things good things about my brother than I should be. Uh, Let me put that another way. I don't have the same capacity to judge my brother with good skepticism as I do uh, neutral parties that I don't know. If I took some claim of my brother seriously, let's say he got caught up in a wildcat stock and he sunk a bunch of money into it and he convinced me to too, which in the in the cosmic oatmeal cookie sense, is not out of the realm of possibility. Should that convince other people that I made a good decision? No, it shouldn't, because quite up front, I am more emotionally vulnerable to thinking positive things and doing things for my brother than I would be for a neutral party. This one doesn't move the needle for me. Okay, you've taken a different approach to this one to me. So my approach... That was not numbered one. And I let you go first. We're, we're oh, I'm sorry. It. Okay. <laughs> we're losing it. <laughs> right. Okay. You get the last one, though. No, yeah. I'm, but I'm, I'm glad you went first. It was probably good. It just helps with the tension. It helps with the narrative tension. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So this is the approach I took with James. Is the, James is James, Jesus' brother, converting to me reads exactly like a post truth event fictionalized addition to convince later people that the story is really true look even the guy's brother did it you know it absolutely is a literary device interesting that's how it reads to me and that's exactly how i view 
the James thing. So for me, James being the brother of Jesus is exactly the kind of after the event literary device that I would expect in anything that's being invented, that's being created. Mm. So the James thing, mm. the approach that I take is, is exactly the opposite of moving me towards acceptance. It moves me away. It genuinely does that to me. So for me, yes, my needle has moved, but it's moved point one away. Oh, wow. So the needle can move negatively. It it can move negatively. You teased it out earlier and you spoiled my thunder. But yeah, James's works exactly the opposite of its intended point for me. It's a counter convincer for me. Mm. Uh, Maybe I I shouldn't ask you this. I've, I've had my fingers singed on this. Do you see my problem with the story? Why I think James is unconvincing to me. It's his brother. Yes. Of, he's of, of course, yeah. if it happened, he would be committed. Yeah. Yeah. As okay. some goes, he ain't heavy. He's my brother. You know. Right. right. But then, <laughs> I guess it depends on on the relationship. You know, there sure. are, there are certain sure. things that my brother could come to me with and saying, Matthew, I've got this. You should invest in it with me. Where I'll go. No, no, no. I, I know you. I know the sort of thing that you fall in love with. And I ain't falling in love with that because I know you're soft on it. Mm. So mm. if there's something that I know that my brother is soft on, I will fight harder against being convinced of it if it's my brother trying to convince me because I know he's soft. I can only say hopefully I do that, but I'm aware that there's a loyalty issue here. And so I mentioned wildcat stocks. I appreciate you picking up on that. Hopefully I would do the same thing, right? But my whole point is not whether I would or wouldn't in some specific case or another. My point is really that I think we all have a an emotional commitment to family that we might not have to others. And it's hard for me to tease out. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how rational James was. I'll say this. If he believed his brother was raised from the dead, I don't consider him particularly rational. Yeah, if <laughs> so, I, yeah. it's not it's not a thought that gives me any pleasure. But let me go there for the briefest amount of time, so it causes me the least amount of discomfort. Mm. But let's say my brother did tragically die in some horrific way, and then revisited me the next week, say, "Hey, look, bro, I'm alive." Yeah, I would be fully on board with what ever woo-woo juice he was selling so that I could have that kind of resistance to death as well. (laughs) Absolutely. So, which is exactly why James is a literary narrative written after the event to try to get people who needed a little bit more of a kick to get them on board. There's no reason to think that the James thing is actually true. It could just be something written afterwards that's fiction. We don't have a way to validate it. We can't interview James so it is a convincer. One more detail. I, I, I don't think I can leave this, but I will make it quick. If my brother died today, so I know I'm speaking in a modern context that doesn't apply to 2000 years ago, but this is part of the reason that I don't expect to uh, don't don't accept this 2000 year old story. If I really thought that my brother died today and he came back and he was walking around with me, talking to me, or any friend, right? So I could be in the disciple role too. Or any friend died, and they came back three days later, and I was walking around talking to him. I would, I hope, 
checked myself in for evaluation. And I sincerely hope that anyone around me, Matthew, you should contact my girlfriend over here. And, and you should encourage them to have me checked in for evaluation. Because it's not, it's not reasonable today to walk around and think that you see risen people. Why is that important? Well, this is the kind of standard that if you want me to believe a story should include professionals that got to weigh in on the mental condition of the people involved. Mm -hmm. Where's the professional mental health counselor to talk to these people that thought a guy was raised from the dead? Okay, I'll leave that as a thought. Plenty of people may think that it's the wrong kind of standard to apply. Convince me if you think I'm wrong. ReasonPress at gmail.com. Uh, convince me I'm wrong. I would like to see the counter case. Yes. So we're both flirting with negative numbers here. The, the, the cumulative case is not cumulativing. No. It, <laughs> I don't think I can say that. Okay. Number six, and you get to go first. <laughs> <laughs> Number six, I get to. Right. The Christian persecutor Paul, formerly Saul of Tartus, also became a believer after a similar experience. Now, what would really help me here is some really good information about the atrocious acts of Saul before he became Paul. Interesting. (laughs) And they're hard to come by. In my searching for it, the only references I could find were biblical references. I couldn't mm-hmm. find mm-hmm. any others. That doesn't help my case. This is the same as the James argument. You know, this guy was really, really terrible. Now look at him. It feels like literary intervention, fictionalized narrative to spice up the story, the convincer. If you weren't convinced by that, maybe you'll be convinced by this. Look, read it. Look at that. Look how he changed his life around. Yeah, you know, Matthew used to eat meat and now he doesn't. Wow, you can be a vegan too. <sighs> so you might accuse me again of, uh, and, and you might be right, by the way, you might accuse me again of, of dissecting this too finely. But I want to say first that I don't think the experiences are similar. Do I think there was a person named Paul who was equally committed to a Christian life? Maybe I don't. That's a that's a different conversation. But I don't think that Paul's experience on the road to Damascus can be claimed to be similar in a substantial way to people who were supposedly walking around with this body that used to be dead. So here's why. Paul didn't experience this supposedly dead walking around guy. He he didn't experience the zombie Jesus. What Paul had was some kind of a vision. If we take the story seriously and we say there was a Paul that really had a vision. okay. so I don't think that the experiences were actually similar. I, I think that's all smoke and mirrors. If I told you that I shook hands with Elvis in the 1970s, and you said, oh, I met Elvis. He was, you know, he's he's dead, but I saw Elvis in my driveway last weekend. No one would think that those two things are similar. So I deny that Paul had a similar experience 
to the disciples. Beyond that, is there a Paul that had a Christian commitment to first century church? You can have that if you want. I don't think Paul's conversion experience was anything like the disciples' supposed experience of the resurrected Jesus. No, I think that's actually fair. However, I think the Christian response to that is going to be along the lines of it's still the same God. And some might actually elevate Paul's experience because it was the ascended Jesus being very personal and intimate with him to a point where nobody else really saw the glory of what was going on. Possibly he didn't even hear the words. Mm -hmm. And the effect on Paul was so dramatic that it blinded him for a period of time. So I think for me as a Christian, I saw the Paul conversion experience and that vision as more special. Is that the right word? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I can kind of see where when Christianese gets to play with these, that they can theologize the Paul experience to the point where it feels more holy, feels more spiritual, feels more perfect. Okay, so I can buy that. I don't have a problem with that as a Christian response. It it doesn't do anything for me. No, me neither. I would be willing to have the conversation. I just think that this idea that Paul... Uh, experience the risen Jesus in a, in a way that's supposedly similar to the disciples experiencing the risen Jesus. For me, those two kinds of stories don't share enough similarity, but I, I do understand what a Christian might say like you did. It just doesn't go very far for me. No, it, it doesn't really move for me at all. I, I think for me, as a skeptic now, if I was to have a vision experience versus Jesus, if I hear a noise behind me and I see Jesus standing in my office behind me where I'm recording this now, in not a vision experience, in a very real post-resurrection body, that would be more alarming to me. Whereas <laughs> if it was a vision experience, I would probably assume there was something deeply unpleasant in the beer that I had an hour ago and it's taken its toll because whatever chemical was in there found its way to my brain and did something very odd. Yeah. I We have made it through the six minimum basic facts. The Gary Habermas's top six. Uh, by the way, folks, there are other lists of minimum basic facts. And uh, according to some of the research that Matthew and I did in the run-up to this show, there may be as many as uh, several dozen minimum basic facts that historians might agree on uh, about the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Regardless of what else might follow on on those lists, these are the six best that Christians have to offer. Two skeptics don't find it particularly uh, particularly well-reasoned, and you've heard what we had to say. But it doesn't mean that the conversation can't go further. There are some other kinds of minimum basic facts that I guess aren't considered quite so important. If you like cumulative cases and you think that it's possible to move the needle, or maybe the death, burial, and resurrection story does move the needle for you, there are other minimum basic facts you might want to look into. Matthew, are you going to publish some of the sources that we reviewed? In the run-up, yes, in be, the show notes? Yes, they'll be included. 
Okay. So those are some of the sources that Matthew and I have been exposed to in regard to the minimum basic facts. You can also still get Gary Habermas's PhD dissertation. It, it was on this very subject. You can get Gary's dissertation. You'll just have to do a Google search for it. I've got it, but I you have to get it through a dissertation publishing house, and I just don't remember the steps at the moment. So my apologies. Mike Lacona has a book. You can look at that book. If you can't get me with the top six reasons and those are your best, you probably, you know, you can, you can pile a whole bunch of uh, further inferior reasons on and I'll have that conversation if you want to. I'm sure Matthew would have that conversation. Yep. Right now the needle is where it is. But hopefully you think that we were at least reasonable in our breakdown that we that we weren't cynical and you know let us know what you think yes please do if you've got another list of facts that you would like us to rationally consider we'll give that a go as well if you have suggestions that we didn't bring up into any of these points that you think might change our position on it happy to hear that as well but as andrew said as it sits now i'm still on the zero the cumulative case hasn't moved me anywhere. Adding all of these values together, I'm still on a pet zero. I need better. You have been listening to a podcast from ReasonPress. Do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard? Do you have a topic that you would like us to cover? Please send all feedback to reasonpress at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes.